Revolutions Per Minute is a weekly radio show from the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. Recorded live at WBAI 99.5 in Brooklyn every Wednesday at 9 p.m. RPM's about doing the work, the work to build a democratic socialist future. Each week, hear the latest news, analysis, and organizing experience from the minds and hearts of activists fighting every day in New York City. Join the movement at socialists.nyc. Hello, New York. This is Chris Carr. You're listening to Revolutions Per Minute, live from the new WBAI Studios, a socialist radio show and podcast from members of the New York City Democratic Socialists of America. The Democratic Socialists of America is the largest socialist organization in the United States, with 95,000 members nationwide, and NYC DSA is its biggest chapter. We are running... We are ran by our 9,000 plus members and organizers who are working together to build democratic socialism in all five boroughs. Once again, I'm Chris Carr, he, him pronouns of the Bronx Upper Manhattan DSA branch. And hey, what's up, New York City? This is Amy Wilson, she, her, and I'm a member of North Brooklyn DSA. As regular listeners of Revolutions Per Minute know, we are living in a time of many overlapping campaigns for justice for the working class. Sometimes, organizing campaigns result in victory and opportunities for celebration while looking forward to the next goal. Other times, campaigns require strategic escalation. On tonight's show, we'll, we'll speak to our recent guest, Katie, from New York for Abortion Rights, about a key victory in the struggle to protect access to abortion for all. We'll hear from NYC DSA member and assembly member from District 36 in Astoria, Zohan Mandani, on the New York Taxi Workers Alliance sit-in at City Hall and why he's going on hunger strike alongside taxi workers to demand debt forgiveness. Finally, we travel to Little Rock, Arkansas with Malik, a former NYC DSA organizer who is using lessons learned from NYC to build socialism in his hometown. But first, the headlines with Lee Zishi. More than 200 people currently detained in Rikers Island's notorious women's facility will be temporarily transferred to state-run prisons in Westchester County in an attempt to reduce the population at the crisis-ridden jail. A Bronx man who had been detained at Rikers Island died the same day a judge granted an emergency conditional release. This is the 13th death at Rikers this year and comes one day after a federal monitor reported that the de Blasio administration's interventions have failed to improve the dangerous conditions at Rikers. Senator Chuck Schumer wrote along with Los Deliveristas Unidos in Harlem with the labor where the labor group discussed the unsafe working conditions delivery workers face in the city. Public advocate Jamani Williams joined a rally on Sunday to demand that Senator Schumer live up to progressive policy promises in Washington. Advocates are pushing the MTA to expand discounts for commuter rail for riders within the five boroughs. Tenants are feeling the pressure as rents continue to rise to pre-pandemic levels. New York Attorney General Letitia James's office is investigating an off-duty NYPD officer for the shooting of two women in Bensonhurst. 
and Emily's List endorsed Kathy Hochul in a key early endorsement for governor, deciding not to wait for other potential candidates like Letitia James to enter next year's race. For this week's headlines, I'm Lee Zishi. Thank you, Lee. Our headlines are brought to us by The Thorn, an incredible weekly newsletter by NYC DSA Electoral Working Group covering local politics and radical activism. Subscribe at thethorn.nyc. Just last month, our comrade Desiree Joy Frias spoke with organizers from New York City for Abortion Rights about their campaign to end clinic harassment in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn. On October 9th, that campaign celebrated an important victory. Let's hear more on that now with NYC for Abortion Rights organizer and NYC DSA member, Katie Finnegan. Good evening, Katie. Welcome back to Revolutions Per Minute. Thanks so much for having me. So you were on the show back in late September to discuss an organizing campaign with New York City for Abortion Rights. For those who may have missed the show, can you give us a brief background on what that campaign is and share any updates that you'd like to share since since that time? Yeah, so to recap a bit of what we discussed on the previous episode, since early 2020, we've been counter-protesting a group called Witness for Life that's supported by the Archdiocese of New York. And on the second Saturday of each month, this group uh, would process uh, from St. Paul's Church in Cobble Hill to the Planned Parenthood in Brooklyn Heights. And once they arrived at the Planned Parenthood, they would harass patients, pray in front of the clinic, and pose as fake clinic escorts. Uh, Father Fidelis Machinsky, who is the leader of the procession, has been arrested in other states for invading clinics and not leaving until, quote unquote, the abortion stop. So he's, you know, been dragged out of clinics essentially by uh, cops in different in Philadelphia and New Jersey and has been arrested over 10 times in the past few years. Uh, in New York, he needs a police escort to do the clinic uh, protests. So he refrains, uh, thankfully, from invading the clinics here. But uh, these are still, you know, not peaceful protests. They distract uh, and intimidate patients. They pose as fake uh, clinic escorts and just impede their right to abortion and essential health care, which we don't think is acceptable. In our counter-protest, we walk slowly in front of the procession, keeping them from reaching the Planned Parenthood as long as we can while chanting and you know, holding signs that are pro-abortion and reproductive justice. And at their last procession that happened in Brooklyn in August, Two of our comrades were arrested on bogus and then subsequently thrown out charges by the NYPD's strategic response unit, which, you know, I will note uh, fails to do anything when uh, processioners break uh, laws like the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act or the FACE Act. Um, So, yeah, that's the that's the recap. As far as the update for the campaign, we won. (laughs) Uh, Woohoo. Incredible. So on October 9th, which was our next scheduled clinic defense, the uh, procession had been canceled in September because allegedly because of NYPD uh, not being able to support the group because it was 9-11. So we, you know, missed August, but did a tabling and we're still active in front of the church. But on uh, October 9th, we showed up to Cobble Hill Park in our pre-meeting where we distribute information about what's going to happen and coordinate ourselves a cop told up 
came up to us and bugged us for a bit until we started listening to him. And he told us uh, that the procession was suspended indefinitely. And we, you know, tried to engage with him a bit, but wasn't really, you know, he was just sort of like, I'm just the messenger. It seemed like he was sent by the church to uh, tell us this information. But we, you know, obviously do not trust the police. Uh, so we went to the church and found the gates closed and picketed in front for about you know, 20 minutes, partially just to make sure that no one was going to come and also to sort of celebrate and get all that out. And, you know, especially people for whom this was their first clinic defense sort of give them a taste of like what that was like. And since we've learned that the uh, Archdiocese of New York had like a newsletter where they uh, said that the uh, Brooklyn procession was canceled until further notice, quote unquote, which uh, is a huge victory for us and for abortion access in New York. It's really exciting and cool for us as an organizing community to be able to celebrate victories. And I think it is really important to celebrate victories and celebrate successful campaigns, which is what this was that you identified not only the direct actions, but also the tabling that you did in the in the neighborhood. You had a petition. You talked to a lot of people in Cobble Hill to raise awareness of this issue. And I think it's fair to say that was a huge reason why you were ultimately successful. So it truly is an organizing victory on your part. And we're just congratulations, really happy for you about that. Um, can you talk a little bit about the significance of this victory, any lessons that you've learned, and what do you see as the next steps um, for abortion access organizing, whether that be here in New York City or on the level of building a national movement? Yeah, so I think the significance of the victory is uh, cannot be understated. For us, this was definitely, I think, our biggest victory since we uh, were founded in 2017 as an organization. And uh, I've seen, you know, conflicting information, but Witness for Life claims to have started in Manhattan in 2008. And in 2020, they expanded to Brooklyn and Staten Island and the Bronx. So, you know, there are constantly anti-abortion protesters in front of especially the Bleecker Street Planned Parenthood. So just the fact that we were able to reduce the number of protesters, you know, in the times that we were kind of protesting and now, you know, just without even our effort or needing to have us counter and, you know, continue to be like a presence in front of the clinic, we were able to enable you know, patients to receive healthcare without, with minimal harassment and distraction, which I just think is a huge win for abortion access in New York and beyond. And it's hopefully really encouraging for other groups who do this kind of work to spawn more groups in different parts of the country who do this work. Cause you know, this has been hard for us here, but in other, you know, less liberal, uh, places that I can't even, yeah, imagine that danger feels really real. And there's been, you know, clinic violence all over the country historically and even more recently. Yeah, I think you touched on the lesson of community outreach. That was one of the big takeaways for me, at least, having in, been involved in some of the tablings was just letting people know what was happening and uh, just giving them something to do, like letting them know they could call the church, which, you know, we were told by some like high ranking member of the church that of St. Paul's and St. Agnes, the church in Brooklyn, where they were hosting Witness for Life, that they'd received over 70 calls asking for the procession to stop or for the church to stop hosting the procession. And we believe that made all the difference or if, you know, is the reason the cop who came up to us uh, 
letting us know that the procession had been canceled indefinitely was said that the church was tired of all the attention or unhappy with the attention, which was huge for us. Like we know we were responsible for a huge amount of that attention. We tabled multiple times in front of the church and handed out thousands of flyers over the course of a few weeks in Cobble Hill and Brooklyn Heights, and also at different sort of abortion, pro-abortion marches. So just getting that information out there, giving, you know, people a concrete action to take against the group, uh, that was all really important for us. You know, we also would want to go to the Bronx, where there are a lot, you know, of abortion clinics and counter-protesting happening that Witness for Life still goes there. We have sort of a limited number of people who live around there, but we definitely want to expand uh, our actions up, uh, all over the city to as many places we can go, also Staten Island. Uh, and I think one thing that might help with that, another lesson that I think at least I think I could say we all learned is the importance of coordinating with other groups in New York City. So one group, uh, just as an example, was Fire Them All, who provided jail support for us in August when our two comrades were arrested. And obviously, police and carceral abolition is critical to reproductive justice. It's They're very entwined issues. And making connections between these struggles, I think, is really informative for us and just, you know, helps us build out a mass movement for abortion, which I think is what we need. I think attending even, you know, more leaning liberal events like the Women's March and getting awareness out there that there are groups like us who are, you know, not just a Planned Parenthood nonprofit, that we do direct action. I think that is something that people are looking for. It was important. Yeah. And uh, I, I just have to emphasize what you said about the connection with police and prison abolition, because it, it's so clearly a theme, uh, even in your description of the uh, events of the last couple of months, that the cops are on the side of anti-abortion activists, and we cannot emphasize that enough. As with anything that we discuss here on Revolutions Per Minute, the cops are not your friends, and I'm glad to hear you say that so so clearly and so full-throatedly, because I think that's a really cool step forward for the abortion access movement. Well, um, thanks for coming back to, to the show. Really happy to have you, and we hope to stay in touch uh, as these campaigns develop. Do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to leave our listening audience with? Yeah, I think one sort of note of encouragement, but also, you know, depression is that we can't get complacent about abortion access in New York. If you Google, you know, search in Google Maps for an abortion clinic, you'll get well, mostly CPCs get suggested to you. Uh, crisis pregnancy centers, which are fake abortion clinics that are essentially run by the church. And when you look at the number of clinics that provide abortion services in New York, there's only three in Brooklyn, I've learned, uh, that are currently, you know, running and the lack of nurses and various sort of labor shortages mean the right to abortion is even maybe harder to get in New York. So I think specifically for New York, we can't get complacent about this. We need more clinics, more resources, and less stigma around this. And I think we need to, you know, pressure, just be out in the streets, be advocating for this. I want to see, you know, us all recognize that this is an incredibly, you know, relevant class and labor and race issue. And I hope that that sort of centrality comes from both us organizing with other groups around different issues that are related, but also, you know, groups like 
you know, people in DSA coming out to defend some, fight some fascists with us. Yes. <laughs> you know I'm down, Katie. Thank you so much. Uh, <laughs> and uh, take care. You just heard Katie Finnegan of New York City for Abortion Rights on their successful campaign to end abortion clinic harassment in Brooklyn. I'm Amy Wilson here with Chris Carr, and you're listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM. We are the officially endorsed show of the New York City Democratic Socialists of America, And today, we're talking about campaigns in many stages, from those celebrating success to those considering strategy and continually escalating. Let's Let's turn now to the ongoing story of the New York Taxi Workers Alliance, a group of yellow cab drivers who are entering the second month of a sit-in at City Hall over the issue of medallion debt justice. Zohan Mamdani, State Assembly Member for District 36, which includes Astoria, began a hunger strike today outside City Hall in an escalation of protest tactics. Our reporter, Bernard Goiter, caught up with him earlier this week. Why are you deciding to, to go on hunger strike to help the taxi drivers? Well, we started this protest. Um, it's coming near 30 days now. Uh, if not, it's already hitting that. And clearly built a lot of support and a much larger coalition than we initially had. You know, at this time, the entirety of New York City's congressional delegation is in support of the city-backed guarantee and support of this call. More than 75 um, state and city elected officials have publicly supported this call. And in addition to that, we have Chuck Schumer, who is in full support of this. And so, you know, over the course of these protests, we also had so many rank-and-file DSA members, as well as just people who are far less involved in politics, stop and speak with the drivers and learn more and more about what it is they're fighting for and what, what it is that they've been forced to live with. And in all of this growing momentum, there's the need to escalate, though, because this is not just an intellectual exercise to see how much we can grow our political constituency for these kinds of calls. This is an urgent demand that without hyperbole, truly can be the difference between life or death for, for so many of these drivers. And while there has been immense progress, the city has yet to come around and agree to this guarantee. And so in the beginnings of this fight, we made very clear that we would be willing to do whatever was necessary. And so on Wednesday, we're going to start a hunger strike because sometimes... You have to show New Yorkers what it is that the city government is asking working class people to suffer through. And and that is hunger, that is starvation, and that has really been the devastation of of these drivers' lives. Do you think it's right that the taxpayers should be bailing out these banks that have made these loans in the first place? Should the the banks be taking a bigger haircut? How do you kind of, how do you feel about the detail of of the debt forgiveness plan? Have you got a perspective on what needs to happen now, what the city needs to do, what the state needs to do. Yeah, I think that fundamentally, this is an issue the city created. In 2001, Bloomberg came into office, the city had a $3.8 billion deficit, and they pinpointed medallions as a means by which to make up that lost revenue. And over the next decade and some, 
they made $855 million off medallion sales. They instituted a 5% transfer tax on every single medallion sale. And at one point, the medallions were selling for north of $850,000. So that tax was quite hefty for so many to pay and amounted to quite a lot of money for the city to accumulate. In addition to this, the city, in spite of internal memos that made clear that the price of the medallion had far outstripped its actual value, the city was still doing the opening bid, would still set the opening floor, rather, for every medallion auction, and so would continually artificially inflate this value. In addition to all of this, the worth of the medallion for decades has come from the fact that it's restricted in how accessible it is, that there is um, a cap on how many cars can be on the road. And then the city let Lyft and Uber into the five boroughs with no regulation at all. And that took, accounting for inflation, north of 40% of cab drivers' income. But too often when we tell the story, we say the only villains here are Lyft and Uber. And while they are villains, it lets the city off the hook. Because the city that, that knew what it was doing, it's the city that really drove these drivers into debt while selling them a dream to the middle class as they marketed it explicitly to them as something that was better than the stock market. And so many people think of this as a bailout or even as like charity towards New Yorkers who are struggling. But frankly, this is, this is what accountability looks like for New York City because New York City created this problem and now New York City must solve it. The city's city council did a study where they said that $500 million towards debt relief would be a just amount. The city back guarantee would cost $93 million. This is not even what, this is only scratching the surface of what drivers are owed. And frankly, we have a city budget that is, you know, hovers around a hundred billion annually and 93 million over 30 years. This is not a burden to taxpayers. This is what drivers are owed at the very minimum. And is the 93 million, would that be a full, would that be full debt forgiveness or is that, is that the plan that's kind of partial? No, that's not full debt forgiveness actually. 93 million, what it does is it basically, the call is for the city to, to guarantee these restructured loans. These lenders that own these medallions, they have communicated directly with drivers as well as with the union, the New York Taxi Workers Alliance, that they would be willing to offer far more favorable terms in terms of principal, in terms of interest rate, in terms of monthly payments, if they could eliminate the risk of the restructuring, the risk being the driver's default. Yeah. If the city has a guarantee, then that risk is eliminated. And so the guarantee creates an incentive for loans that drivers can actually afford. Because right now, what the city's current plan, the one that's entirely insufficient, what it allows for is monthly payments of up to $2,000. What it allows for is a principal that can be north of $300,000. What it allows for is a lender to be able to go after a driver's personal assets if they default on this loan. And, you know, these are not hypotheticals. This is what this industry has been doing to these drivers over the last many years. And so what the guarantee would do 
is create a maximum principal of $145,000, monthly payments of around $800 to $1,000, and a guarantee such that if a driver was to default, then the city would sell the medallion, and the difference between the worth of the medallion and what the driver owed the lender is what the city would then pay. And that is where the cost of the $93 million comes from, because it's an analysis of what the likelihood is of default rates and then what the city's tab would be after all of that. And it accounts for the fact that the medallions retain their value. Um, and indeed, if there is further regulation of Lyft and Uber, their value should increase again in the future. And you're simply asking the city that the city act as a... Um, basically, it provides credit default insurance on the on these... Yeah, and, on these and it, you know, yeah. to be... To be clear, this is a plan that that assumes a very low value of the medallion, so as to not be one that is, you know, rose tinted in its in its prediction for the future. And it's also one that assumes a high de higher default rate than is actually expected, so that the city accounts for the highest possible cost of this, as opposed to one that is, you know, just hopeful. And I think it's, you know, while um, while I'm so proud of our organization for the amount of work and support that we have done in terms of organizing, in terms of bringing people out. Um, I think it's also very important to note that this issue is one that is hardly simply the, the question of the socialist left versus the city government. It is one that we have built out into a coalition larger than many that I've seen. And this plan is one that has been looked through by, you know, Comptroller of New York City, Scott Stringer, has endorsed this plan. Tish James, the Attorney General of New York State, has endorsed this plan. Um, and I think that that has been helpful when arguing with the city's bad faith responses to, to this call. What's your expectation of the incoming uh, mayoral administration? What Do you think they will, they're going to take this on board? Are they... Is this the maybe the strategically is this the right time to be to be pushing this issue? Um. Yeah, so this is you know, I, I think I, I haven't spent too much time kind of digging into what our plans will be in the next year because this is fundamentally an issue that can be resolved in this mayorality, and it is always the instincts of politicians to kick off their responsibilities to their successors or to an alternate, you know, state entity. And all that it would take to achieve this victory is for the current mayor, Bill de Blasio, to make an adjustment to the budget. And he has four every quarter of the year there are adjustments made to the to the to the budget. And that is, you know, this hunger strike is beginning now to also put pressure on the mayor prior to him having to submit the, the third quarter adjustments. Um, I think that the fight will obviously not be over even when we do achieve um, a city back guarantee because of just how long the Taxi Limousine Commission and different mayoralities have exploited drivers and their labor. Um, but I think that we shouldn't give de Blasio a, a free pass by thinking that, you know, we can just kind of wait until what Adams does. Let, let's go to something more on your on your doorstep now. Um, you went to Rikers and were, were one of the legislators that spoke incredibly passionately about the conditions there. What's what 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 happened? What what needs to happen now in terms of um, Bill De Blasio has obviously failed on his pledge to close Rikers, and it's still very much open. 
what's going to happen now, what do you want to happen now, what, what, what needs to happen in terms of the implementation of, of bail reform laws that have been successfully passed, where, where are we and what, what can DSA members do to, to, to help in terms of closing Rikers and, uh, and stopping incarcerating so many of your, constitu- your constituents? Well, I think that this, that, you know, there's actually a, a through line between both of these um, issues, which is that so often they will try and sell us crumbs as progress, right? In in the case of taxi drivers, the city announced this $65 million plan as if it was going to resolve the crisis, even though we know it will actually do no such thing. Similarly with Rikers, we have, you know, the governor and the mayor working together to do, um, to transport trans and, and uh, women identifying incarcerated individuals from Rikers to upstate prison facilities and telling us that this is actually doing the work of decarcerating. And I think what we need to do is call a crumb a crumb and make it very, very clear that this is unacceptable and that when we called for decarceration, or when we called for debt forgiveness, that's exactly what we want to see. And with regards to Rikers, decarceration, what progress looks like and the way in which we can you know, fight for it is to make explicit our demands and then also make very explicit who is responsible for the inability to achieve those demands. Because so often it's the same people who tell us that Rikers is in a humanitarian crisis and are touring Rikers and taking photos at Rikers who are actually sending people to Rikers. So we're talking about the district attorneys of all five boroughs here in New York City, and also the mayor who refuses to um, use 6A, which is a program which could release, you know, whether it be 60 people or 100 people, it could release people off of Rikers. Um, The governor who signed less is more into um, make, you know, signed it into action, signed it into law, and had, you know, I think about 191 people released there are still more people that the governor could have released through the full implementation of the law because the way the law was written, it only takes full implementation as of now in March of next year. Um, And then additionally, we have the question of the district attorneys and judges who are actually flouting the law and the way in which they both request and set bail. Um, I went to Queens County, you know, I went to arraignments um, and it was disgusting to see I mean, just the process by which people are supposed to be receiving justice, and it's it's truly kind of makes a mockery of that term. And I guess you could say I was lucky. I don't know what terminology to use in that I was there mostly for desk appearance tickets, so we were not seeing the, the worst excesses of DAs and, and judges. But many of my colleagues who went to arraignments in different boroughs went to night court. They saw, they saw you know, people being sent to Rikers on set – and having bail set on them for amounts that the judge knew that there was no way that they could actually afford this. Um, it's just, it's quite disgusting. So I think that we have to call these things out for what they are and we have to make clear who's actually making them happen. And do you think it's also important to examine the wider state prison system? Um, there, there seems to be almost this, this sense that, you know, Rikers is the worst, but, but actually the conditions at other state prisons like Sing Sing Sullivan aren't necessarily known. Um, have you joined some of your colleagues in, in visiting those facilities as well? Yeah, I've, I actually visited Bedford Hills um, Prison in um, Bedford Hills Correctional Center in, I think it was February of this year. Um, it was 
a sad fact that we were actually among the first legislators to visit any correctional facility in New York State um, since the pandemic had begun. And because of the pandemic, these facilities had shut off visitation. So we were among the last people in New York State that still had the right to visit these incarcerated individuals because their families could not. Um, I think that you're absolutely right to tie the issues of Rikers to the issues of, of felt at the state level across the state because it's a question of incarceration. And Rikers is a uniquely horrific place, but it is very much part of a statewide system of, of incarceration that is in many ways the enacting of a death penalty in anything, you know, just without use, without the use of that name, thinking about how many New Yorkers are dying there and what their age is and what we're allowing to have happen in our name. You just heard Assemblymember Zohan Mamdani on taxi workers organizing for debt forgiveness and the ongoing campaign to close Rikers. If you're just tuning in, this is Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI, and tonight we are discussing a variety of our campaigns for working-class liberation. I'm Chris Carr. And I'm Amy Wilson, and I'd love to give you a brief reminder that Revolutions Per Minute is hosted on a listener-sponsored station here at WBAI. That is not to the side of our mission as socialists and members of DSA. It is central to that mission. WBAI is community radio supported by and accountable to a community. As you're listening right now, that includes you. Whether you've grown up listening to WBAI or this might be your first time tuning in, you should know that you are part of something really special, a radio station that has been broadcasting stories of struggle for six decades and counting. We here at Revolutions Per Minute know that building socialism in the United States is a long-term project, and we hope to be here on WBAI for a long time, bringing those stories to you. In order to do that, though, we need you whether you're in Brooklyn or Beacon, Astoria or Astor Place, or perhaps like our next guest living outside of New York City, to participate in our community by giving a small donation to support the station's operating costs and keep the lights not just on, but burning brightly. To give to the station, please call 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950, or go to WBAI.org. Thank you. The COVID-19 pandemic has been a major driver of internal migration in the United States, especially for young people who may have chosen to move home in response to the crisis. Our next guest is a good friend and forever comrade of mine from North Brooklyn DSA, now living in his hometown of Little Rock, Arkansas, and organizing with Central Arkansas DSA. We will have a brief opportunity for listener calls after this segment, so if you'd like to call in, get ready and note that our number is 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877, the number to call and make a question or comment. But first, let's hear from Malik Marshall. Hi, good evening, Malik. Welcome to Revolutions Per Minute. Hi, thank you. It's so good to be here. I've listened to you all a lot, and now I'm here. It's pretty cool. Wow, that's what we love to hear. So um, tell me about yourself, Malik, and your connection to New York City DSA. So I first got involved in DSA, I want to say around 2019, and it was actually in YDSA, 
uh and um that was like uh we were really involved in the bernie campaign i think that might have been what got me at my first meeting um and i worked with them until i graduated and then moved over to north brooklyn dsa and uh organized there for uh i want to say about a year and it was it was great uh that's where i first learned about organizing first understood what organizing meant and why it was important and why we as leftists need to organize and so i look back on my time in new york city dsa really really fondly um it was super formative for me oh that is wonderful to hear and tell me a little bit about where you are now and what you are doing with those skills that you learned here in new york city yeah so i moved back to my hometown little rock arkansas uh, I always knew I was going to move back and move back a little bit earlier than I expected. I was at least going to wait for my lease to end. But, um, you know, once COVID hit, I came back and uh, pretty quickly messaged the local DSA chapter and started coming to some of the things that were going on that were going on here. Uh, so, yeah, we are the central Arkansas chapter of the DSA. And um, it's 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 really great. It's got a whole bunch of new challenges uh, that I did not expect coming from New York City. But it's very fulfilling and it's it, it feels really good to organize in the South because I feel like the South has such a deep, strong history of organizing. Absolutely. And uh, uh, I think for many people living in, in New York City and organizing in New York City, it might be hard to imagine uh, what participating in the socialist movement in a different context, like what you have um, in central Arkansas might be like. So I'd love to hear about um, the types of campaigns that central Arkansas DSA is working on right now. What's been successful for you or anything else that you'd like to say about Sort of the the conditions if you will of your organizing and, and what you do within them yeah so i think that the the biggest i mean you know i, I don't have the numbers on this so i don't know for sure but i know that being in north brooklyn it was one of you know the biggest chapters in the whole country and uh it always felt like there were people like you amy and others who uh made it really easy to join and be a part of decision making and uh, have people that are there that are kind of like guiding you and uh, you know you can sort of take your 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 baby steps and there were a lot of times that I felt like I was super happy being like a a foot soldier um, who you know obviously made decisions and stuff but but just you know I was happy to kind of you know get have people explain to me and help me figure things out um, and it's just a totally different ball game here. It's a totally different ball game, and it makes me wish, actually, that uh, I spent more time um, trying to take on uh, more in New York City DSA and taking more advantage of the opportunity because I didn't know I'd be moving back so soon. And because it's just it, it's you know, and I don't think anybody, nobody in the chapter would would be upset at me saying this that we're very small. Uh, you know, when I when I first started coming. Our average meeting was maybe eight people, uh, and it's it's very clear here in Little Rock that people on the left don't largely understand organizing, and it's not a and I think that's true everywhere, right, in the United States, especially. Um, but uh, I think it's especially true in the South, which is obviously ironic based on what I was just saying before. But I think that despite our our deep history, it's it's something that that people don't understand here. If you talk to the average person. There is 
a very strong idea that the most important thing that you could be doing is like running for office. Like everybody says, all of the like leaders here are always like, we need more progressives in office. Like that's like the big thing. Like all of you young people need to go run for office. And I'm like, no, no, please don't just go run for office. That's like, don't do that. Like start organizing, like join a DSA chapter. You know what I mean? Like is running for office is such a different thing when you're doing it uh, as an, as an organized group and you're, you know, nominating candidates and you're running uh, with, 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 with an, with the movement at your back, you know what I mean? It's a totally different ball game. And so it's just something that people don't understand here. And so I think a lot of the struggle has been, and this is why I appreciate my time in New York city DSA so much. I mean, I feel like I, I, it was so, so formative for me because if I hadn't had that time, I feel like I would very much be caught in a lot of the same trap that leftists are caught in down here, which is very much, you know, I, you know, I, obviously I, I, I am not saying I, we have a reading group. I'm into reading groups. We need reading groups. You know what I mean? But like that seems to be sort of the extent of the left um, here in Little Rock is like a lot of reading groups, a lot of like sort of small um, projects that, that are that are good. A lot of them are good, but but there's really no sort of there is an understanding that we need to have a mass movement, but there's really no push towards a mass movement, I guess you could say. And that's something that we've really started to address in the chapter. Uh, I mean, I'm co-chair of the chapter, and I think that my time in New York City really helped uh, me sort of formulate that that understanding and and help uh, some of the people in the chapter who who really really like that. And I think that we're 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 moving forward on that. Um, and so as far as the campaigns that we're working on now, we have, I would say our most, the one that we're sort of most involved in right now is sort of recent, we're still workshopping the name, but I think recently been dubbed programs, not police. And it's, it's based in this um, low income black neighborhood that I actually found out after I've been organizing there for months that that's where my mom and my mother's whole side of the family grew up like right in this neighborhood. And it was like a super spiritual moment for me that I realized I was like totally organizing in my mom's like old stomping grounds like my grandpa grew up there it was it was really like it was really crazy for me to find that out there's so much community infrastructure in this community uh and and it's totally sort of either being left by the wayside or like actively closing down and then of course and this is something that's that i found really exciting because um you know i think i kind of expected i didn't necessarily expect this to come from people in the community but you know one thing that people have said to me often when we were canvassing there is like you know the next thing they're going to do is is bring in police and they're going to be wondering why there's so much crime in the neighborhood and i was like yes okay like that's exactly that's exactly what i was going to say you know um and so it's it's a uh, and so it really like the name it really came out of conversations with the community you know we um uh we've got a lot of really uh, interesting campaigns. Um, and, uh, let's see. Uh, and there's actually this, this group at my old high school that is, it's called, they're called the young leftists and they're high school students. And I've been going, uh, with some of the members of my chapter to some of their meetings and like getting them involved with some of the stuff we're doing and like high schoolers turn out y'all like it's so like the kids are all right like i swear like every one of their meetings has like 45 people and we're like yeah uh wow but i think that what we what we really are trying to focus on is 
having a few campaigns that we're putting our all into because we're just a small chapter, you know? And so it's not about trying to do everything. It's just about trying to do a few things really well. And if we can get some strong victories there, I think that's where our focus is right now. Well, it sounds like you're absolutely on the right track and it's such an interesting array of campaigns that you've decided to throw your, your weight that you're building up uh, as your chapter that you've decided to throw it behind these, these campaigns. Um, and I do, I love hearing you talk about uh, New York City DSA and how it gave you these tools and skills. Obviously, that's very close to my heart. Um, but our chapters also have something else in common in addition to having your presence, which is that um, we both have radio shows. So could you talk to me a little bit about that? It's 88.3 KABF. It's Voice of the People. Uh, and it's like the guy who is sort of always the point person is like an old union organizer. Uh, his name is Tony. He's awesome. Uh, and so it's like, it's, it really is like, uh, the, you know, the voice of the people. And so it's, it's kind of an honor to even be a part of that station. It's, it's a cool structure in the sense that pretty much anybody in the chapter that has a strong idea for a radio show and has a strong plan that they can put together can pretty much like sign up to do a show people will only do a show about something they're really passionate about. And so we, we have these just amazing array over the last year of these shows that people have done that have just been really exciting. Well, I think it's fair to say that that is one horizon we're organizing toward is a socialist radio show on a community radio station in every town. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. You would not have thought Little Rock, but that's that's one. <laughs> Right. Well, if there's one thing our listeners have learned from this interview, it's expect the unexpected from Central Arkansas DSA. Yes, yes. <laughs> so thanks so much for coming on the show, Malik. And uh, keep in touch. We'd love to hear more about what you're doing down there. All right. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's really, like I said, an honor to be here. And I just appreciate the work you do so much and, you know, just highlighting organizing efforts from so many people. It's, it's really important. And it, 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 I, I think that going forward, we might start to use this as a model for our show. So, hey, keep an eye out for that. I'll, I'll let you know. <laughs> you just heard from Malik Marshall down in Central Arkansas, DSA. We're coming to the end of tonight's show, but our phone lines are open at 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. For brief listener comments on anything that you've heard on tonight's show, I, I am here with Chris tonight in the studio. He's one of our newer um, RPM hosts, and he is really looking forward to speaking with you live on air. So don't let Chris and I end the show lonely. Please give us a call, 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. And while we wait for calls to come in, Chris, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on what we've heard um, so far tonight. You know, it, it, I really enjoyed that that conversation you had with Malik, uh, especially talking about sort of the importance and the deep history of socialist organizing in the South. Because something that was quite surprising to me when I first learned about it, and something I don't think most people don't know, is one of the largest socialist organizations over 100 years ago, part of the Socialist Party of America, the, one of the largest state organizations for socialist politics was in Oklahoma, like deep red Oklahoma over 100 years ago. This is like one of the epicenters of, of socialist organizing and not just in, in the areas of labor, but also in interracial or organizing as well. Like the, 
the Socialist Party of Oklahoma was one of the first political parties that have like a very have a very pro anti racist stance. And this is and as you can imagine in Oklahoma, this is like pretty this is like pretty like like paradigm shifting. So so I, I think there there really is a, a really rich history of 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 organizing in the deep south among socialists that I imagine most people don't know about. And I and I think it's a very uh, uh inspiring history to to know that 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 if if socialists were able to have success back then, then maybe it can happen again in the future. You know, like there's no reason uh, that uh, Oklahoma or Arkansas have to be deep red states, or if they are deep red, maybe it could, that can have a different meeting. If you know what I mean. Absolutely, I, mean. I do know what you mean, Chris. I do know what you mean, and it looks like we do have a caller on the line. So let's get go ahead and get them live on the air. I'm here. Hi, you're live with Revolutions Per Minute. Sure. I just wanted to respond to Mamdani because I've heard him before on your show. And it seems to me that he's he's focusing so much on the city, but never blaming Uber and Lyft. And if, if one recalls, uh, back in 2015, de Blasio and Corey Johnson were trying very hard to institute an Uber cap, a cap on the number of for hire vehicles in the city. And... Uber and Lyft rallied against it. They even brought in Al Sharpton and the National Action Network, who made the claim that capping Uber would hurt black and brown drivers. Um, so there's a lot of lobbying from, from Uber and Lyft, um, on top of the fact that they're, they're just very deleterious for the city anyway. They contribute to traffic. They've never been successful business models. So I, 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 I appreciate what he's doing, but I think there's be an injection of some, some, some real honesty. If he could really kind of also sharpen his words for Uber and Lyft, their business models, and, 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 and possibly even respect the fact that the, some of the city's leaders were against Uber and Lyft for some time in, in a way that may have helped yellow taxi drivers. Thank you. Well, thank you uh, for your for your response and for your thoughtful listening to what our comrades Oran has to say. Um, I, I would say, in response, as somebody who has a less deep knowledge of this issue than um, Zoran himself or our comrade uh, Desiree, who is the uh, child of a, a taxi driver, um, but I would say there there might be something to the idea that. Um, we can pressure the city in a way that pressuring private corporations is a little bit more challenging. I think uh, Zoran had a really spot-on analysis of um, naming and uh, shaming the people who are, are supposed to be accountable to the people of New York City. That's the whole deal with a private corporation, right, is they don't have to be accountable to a constituency. However, Bill de Blasio, in theory, is supposed to be serving the interests of uh, New Yorkers. And I think the argument that Zoran is trying to really um, engage with most fully is that as engaged citizens, as voters, as union members, as tenants, it's really our responsibility to hold elected officials accountable. Um, but I do agree with you uh, regarding Uber and, and Lyft. And I think there's a lot to be said um, for us as well as, as labor leftists about what they've done um, for the, the gigification of work. Um, App-based platforms are, are really, they may be good for the customer, but I think we're seeing whether it's a car, whether it's food delivery, whether it's um, 
uh, care work like babysitters and um, pet sitters and things that are distributed through apps these days, that really is not good for the working class. So I think you're absolutely right that those also need to be targets of socialist organizing. So um, thank you again for your call. And, and Chris, do you have any response to um, our caller? No, I, I think you you pretty much covered it. I I, I really I, pre I appreciate the caller uh, coming calling in and sort of bringing that very important point about uh, Uber and Lyft are are not our friends, and I think uh, should also be the target of 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 our activism and and have really shaped our cities in ways that that are that that may as you said may appear uh, pleasant to the customer, but has very far reaching effects that that may be deleterious in the end. Well, it does seem like we're coming to the end of our, our show tonight, uh, so we will go ahead and close those phone lines, but we'll be back uh, with more next week. And um, before I let Chris uh, take us out for the evening, I just want to say um, I was present myself at the um, uh, New York City for Abortion Rights Action on October 9th, and I witnessed the uh, joy that came with uh, an actual organizing victory and I, I do think it, it bears repeating what our guest Katie said earlier in the show that um, we here in um, New York City cannot take access to safe abortion for granted. We really um, need to be uh, pressuring um, our communities and our elected officials to, to keep up with this struggle. And also just to underscore again, we talked both with Katie and with Zoran about um, police and prison abolition. It is a crucial part of our struggle for socialism. And there's a reason why it comes up on Revolutions Per Minute almost every week. It's not just because it's a, a personal uh, vendetta of mine. It's because it's a political um, ideology that we here in DSA share. So thank you, Chris, for, for co-hosting with me. It's been wonderful. And um, thanks for our listening audience. Yeah, so we're almost out of time for tonight's show, but we'll be back next week at 9 p.m. to hear from socialist teachers organizing for justice for students, workers, and parents. You've been listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI and NYC Broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. To connect with us after the show, you can email us at revolutionsnyc at gmail.com. You can find us on our website, revolutionsperminute.simplecast.com, or on Twitter at NYCRPM. I'm Chris Carr. And I'm Amy Wilson. Thank you for listening, and good night, and may the workers of the world unite. <laughs>